G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. When we left off last week, we were up to our hairy knees in numbers, comparing different ancient ways of calculating the ages of pre-flood kings and we really only managed to crack the lid of this particular can of worms it sounds like we still have a long way to go before we have any hope of understanding the long ages of the patriarchs of genesis 5 yeah that's right chris there's still a lot to consider before we can begin drawing conclusions and we haven't even looked at all the initial data for the opening premise of last week's episode which was that there's some kind of numerical correlation between genesis 5 and the sumerian king list If you missed last week's episode, you really need to listen to that before you get into this one. And since we didn't do it last week, we're going to have to do it now. Let's read the pre-flood section of a translation of the Sumerian king list. Now, here it is. After the kingship descended from heaven, the kingship was in Eridu. In Eridu, Alulim became king. He ruled for 28,800 years. Alaljar ruled for 36,000 years. Two kings, they ruled for 64,800 years. Then Eridu fell and the kingship was taken to Badtibira. In Badtibira, Enmenluana ruled for 43,200 years. Enmengalana ruled for 28,800 years. Dumuzid the shepherd ruled for 36,000 years. Three kings, they ruled for 108,000 years. Then Badtibira fell, and the kingship was taken to Larag. In Larag, Ensipadzidana ruled for 28,800 years. One king, he ruled for 28,800 years. Then Larag fell, and the kingship was taken to Zimbir. In Zimbir, Enmendurana became king. He ruled for 21,000 years. One king, he ruled for 21,000 years. Then Zimbir fell and the kingship was taken to Kurapag. In Kurapag, Ubaratutu became king. He ruled for 18,600 years. One king, he ruled for 18,600 years. In five cities, eight kings, they ruled for 241,200 years. Then the flood swept over. Right, that's the end of the quote. That translation is a, a composite of various manuscripts because we don't have any that are preserved in flawless condition, unfortunately. The numbers are presented as signs which are tallied up to give a total. There are three different signs in use in the list which represent numeric values. You have a sign for 60 times 10 or 600. You have a sign for 60 squared, which is 3,600. And you have a sign for 60 squared times 10, 36,000. In the total presented by the author at the end of the King's List, each of those three signs is represented six times. That's six of the 60 squared times 10, and then six of the 60 squared, and six of 60 times 10. And that's how they arrive at the total figure 241,200 years. So it turns out that you can do the same thing 
with the biblical ages of the patriarchs in Genesis 5. You have to round each number down to the nearest 10 and using decimal notation instead of sexagesimal, which is what a Semitic scribe would do as opposed to a Sumerian, the total of the eight patriarchs between and not including Adam and Noah will give you 6,660 years. That's six times 10 cubed, six times 10 squared, and six times 10. So the individual ages of patriarchs in Genesis and the, the kings of the king list, do any of those ages of each generation actually match when you convert them like that? No, they don't correlate at all. It's only the total when you add them all up and you don't get a total recorded in Genesis. You have to work that out for yourself. So the assumption here is that the Sumerian scribe had only the names and a total tally to work with, possibly due to the loss or damage of that information. And from there, he's fabricated the numbers to repopulate the king list to arrive at the tallied total. The idea is that some theoretical original document, which agrees in detail with Genesis 5, was also the original basis for the Sumerian king list, which had become corrupted and was filled in using substitutionary numbers to arrive at the preserved total in the absence of the original document, which would have restored the original numbers. But the Sumerian scribe has assumed that the numbers are written in the base 60 format when they were supposed to be understood as decimal numbers. I might just mention that the scribal error hypothesis is an assumption, and it may actually be the case that the Sumerians inflated the numbers intentionally. I think that there are a lot of weaknesses with the view presented by answers in Genesis on this. However, I also think that the amount of similarities and the correspondences between the texts demand an explanation. We only hinted at it last week, but I believe we may get closer to an answer if we consider a symbolic approach to these texts. That's not to eliminate literalism, but to find the delicate balance between historicity and meaning. I think it's important that we consider a symbolic approach to the numbers because it helps us to avoid going to ridiculous lengths to defend the literal reading. And I mentioned this last week, but again, if we argue that the number of years in Genesis 5 might actually be months instead of years, then we have to deal with the problem of people having children at the age of five. And we have to explain how months and years are somehow different in subsequent chapters in the flood story. Yeah, that could be a bit problematic, uh, I'd imagine. I've also heard people say that there were special conditions back then that you know meant people were able to live longer, like less uh, genetic corruption, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah you've got to watch out for special pleading and these kind of things. Uh, again, that view assumes a material creation ex nihilo, which is not the message being communicated by Genesis 1 and therefore not the basis on which we get to explain the phenomena of Genesis 5. Uh, remember that back in Season 2 of the podcast, we talked about how the first man, Adam, was not materially created out of dirt, but rather was selected out of a vast multitude of human persons who already existed and may have existed for some considerable time. When we read the creation account correctly, we have no need to defend highly improbable interpretations of the text. I can see how that makes sense logically, but we are still left with a problem of people living for a very, very long time, although we still have some more options to try and explain that, don't we? Oh, there are always more options for those people who really want to try and avoid any kind of meaningful interpretation. Uh, some have proposed that perhaps the genealogy 
leaves out several generations and the large numbers are simply an account of the years between significant persons in the genealogy. So they want to take the numbers literally, but then they can't take the language of direct familial descent literally. Honestly, I, I didn't think the text could have been much clearer on that. It's kind of like throwing out the baby so you can drink the bathwater. It's worth mentioning that some traditions of the Sumerian king list feature additional generations not found in the record that correlates with Genesis 5. But those additional generations do not account for the difference in ages for the kings that are featured in the list. In other words, populating the list with more names does not reduce the ages assigned to each name. These attempts at explanation are getting harder and harder to take seriously. Oh, don't worry. I saved the best for last. Some people are going to go all in on the literalism to the point where they need a flat earth, complete with a pressurised atmospheric dome to keep people in some kind of hyperbaric chamber made of ice, which would promote growth and longevity and filter out UV light. This ties into what I was saying earlier about the genetic corruption theory. If you're still entertaining the idea of that model of the cosmos, all I can say is, please go back and listen to seasons one and two of this podcast. By the way, that view is really only convenient if you want to give some reason why you think that the first people God created should have been white. <laughs> oh, my goodness, it's that whole uh, black people are evil, Mark of Cain, racism stuff that we were talking about before. Will that ever, ever go away? I hope so, but unfortunately it's going to require that people want to read the Bible closely more than they want to vilify their coloured neighbours. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, now, Chris, last week when I mentioned the theory that some scholars have proposed about the numbers in Genesis 5 actually having connections to Babylonian astronomy and the movement of the planets, you suggested that perhaps we could look into that a little bit more. Yeah, it actually sounds pretty interesting and, and it gets us out of the whole long ages debate if we assume that we're not really talking about a list of very old dudes, but instead it's describing cosmic order where the whole chapter is just describing how God made everything in the universe work just the right way. Yeah, I certainly agree. It's an intriguing interpretive option, and it's not unprecedented. For example, uh, when we read the book of First Enoch, that book begins with the first five chapters describing the way that God made everything in the universe to work a certain way and that everything in the created world seems to know how to behave appropriately and how to do things at the right time and all that kind of thing, which is the setup then to the contrast with the fallen sons of God who become the focus of the next 31 chapters of the book, which we know as the book of the Watchers. So if we took that way of thinking and applied it to Genesis 5, which precedes the story of the fallen sons of God in a similar way, then the argument goes that the story of these patriarchs and their long ages is actually a description of the movement of celestial bodies, in particular the planets, and this demonstrates the order that God created in the world by showing the regular timing of these celestial events, which then sets up a contrast against what happens in Chapter 6. That sounds pretty cool, but how do we know... That's really what's going on in the text. Yeah, that's the real question, isn't it? So there was some work done on this by a French scholar named Barnoon. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, hope you appreciate what I'm doing for you here, Chris, because I actually had to dig up his academic material on this, which, of course, was written in French. Uh, you're better at French than I am. And then I had to put it through a translator and try to follow all these mathematical calculations in order to be able to have some idea of what he's presenting. Uh, he has a, an article which uh, was published in Revue Biblique. I'm not very good at a French accent, so I should probably stop pretending. Uh, this was published in July 1970, uh, volume 77. And he's put together 19 pages, which was titled, 
well, in translation, it says digital research on the genealogy of Genesis 5. I think that means numerical research. Um, he's not looking at his fingers. I, I have to admit, mathematics is not my strong point, especially when you start getting to, into uh, astronomy and all that jargon. But anyway, I did go through his paper, and after careful consideration, I have decided that it's rubbish. What? What do you mean? You can't say that just because he's French or maths is hard or something. Oh, no, no, no. That's, that's not at all why I think it's rubbish. I, I think it's rubbish because after he produced pages and pages of material in order to be able to present these conclusions, he was only able to provide, after extensive mathematical exercises, just two numbers out of the 27 that appear in Genesis 5, which have any correlation at all to anything to do with Babylonian astronomy in relation to the movement of the planets. Not only that, but the strongest piece of evidence that he presents in this paper is based on the fact that Enoch is given the total age of 365 years, which he believes corresponds to the number of days in a solar year. Well, you have to admit that kind of sounds like it possibly could be something. Well, sure, it does kind of sound like something at first because it also happens that one of the guys in the Sumerian king list is also talked about just like Enoch having an experience in which he gets taken up to heaven. And that guy had associations with the cult of a solar deity. So it sounds really convenient to have those connections, but there's one little problem. Ooh, what's that? Nobody in ancient Mesopotamia, or in Israel for that matter, had a calendar of 365 days. Only the Egyptians did, and technically that was just a lunar calendar with an extra five days chucked in at the end of the year. And we really don't have much in the way of Egyptian connections here in this text, which is very clearly oriented around interaction with Mesopotamian culture. For those people who might not be aware of this, the, the norm in the ancient Near East was to use what they called a lunisolar calendar. That means that the year was comprised of months and the months were regulated by the phases of the moon. But in order to make the lunar calendar correlate with the movement of the sun relative to the observer, every so often there was a requirement to add some extra time into the calendar in order to compensate and bring the calendar back into line with the sun. So you'd have something like an extra month every so many years, depending on which calendar we're talking about, or perhaps some extra days added to some of the months. Even so, with the awareness of the discrepancy between lunar and solar movements and factoring in the need for extra days or an extra month to bring that correction back in, you generally didn't have a 365-day calendar anyway. You're generally dealing with a 360-day calendar for everyday life and business, and it's particularly significant that different aspects of ancient life relied on different calendars, which meant that for religious purposes, since the religion of the ancient Near East was oriented around agricultural cycles. It was the lunar calendar that was in use rather than a solar calendar. So you can see that the idea of a solar calendar in the context of Genesis 5 really doesn't fit. In fact, given the evidence that we have from the flood account, which we'll talk about at a later date, it seems apparent that there was a 360-day calendar year in use by the author of the primeval history. At the end of the day, I think we have to accept that just because we as modern people can see a familiar number in amongst those 27 different numbers found in Genesis 5, that doesn't mean that the number is used the way that we would use it today. And that number might have inspired scholars to look for more numbers that have some kind of astronomical significance. But if that were the case, 
We should expect to see a lot more correlation than simply three numbers out of 27, having any kind of resemblance to the calculations of planetary movements used in ancient Babylon, especially since those numbers aren't related to each other in astronomical observations, in the Genesis account, or in the Sumerian king list. The odds of intention being behind that alleged correlation are about the only thing here that actually is astronomical. And let's be honest, it's the king list that ought to be related to Babylonian astronomy, if anything, not the numbers in Genesis. And that's not the case either. So I think that's a bust for that theory. That's a shame. It was really interesting. Yeah, that's right. And it's just another lesson teaching us that no matter how much you want to find something in Scripture, if the text can't sustain it, then you just can't persist along that line. You have to drop it and bring yourself back into line with Scripture. We just haven't got any kind of realistic means of interpreting the biblical data without seriously considering that the numbers do not mean the same thing to our modern culture that they did to the first audience. And I think we're going to find that the same holds true of the Sumerian material as well, not just the biblical. So we're going to have to get started with a basic understanding of important numbers in the ancient Near East. We've already talked about the number 60 and how significant that was to the Babylonians as a number which came to represent perfection because of how useful it was and how much explanatory power it provided for calculations in a diverse range of situations, whether for account keeping or astronomy or architecture. It just made sense to me that the number 60 should be used for the reign of a king who has dominion over every aspect of human life. So finding the reign of a king expressed in multiples or powers of 60 is actually quite intuitive. On the other hand, the biblical account seems to be relatively unconcerned with notions of kingship. Nobody's expressly called a king in Genesis 5. Nobody appears to execute the functions of a king. And instead of the kind of grand language around the reign of a king, we have only everyday family matters recorded in the list. Births and deaths and that kind of thing. If those guys are in fact kings, then it really doesn't seem to be important in the eyes of the author. But having said that, the number 60 is still significant in the biblical genealogy. Here's an abridged quote from a paper by Lloyd Bailey, uh, obtusely titled Biblical Math as Heilsgeschichte. That's German for salvation history, in case you didn't pick that up. Unfortunately, I didn't have to translate this one because you can get it in English, but that doesn't prevent scholars from leaving German words in there to make it sound cool. Sorry. Uh, this was published in a book which is essentially a collection of essays on biblical community in honour of scholar James Sanders. The book was called A Gift in Due Season and released as part of the Journal of the Study of the Old Testament Supplement Series. It was published by Sheffield Academic Press in 1996. So that's remarkably close to the publication date of the paper I quoted last time from Answers in Genesis. Anyway, here's the quote. A fundamental observation to be made is that a substantial number of the ages involve the number 60. For example, Enoch's 300 years is 60 times 5. Kenan's 840 years is 60 times 14. Methuselah's 187 years is 60 times 3 plus 7. And Enosh's 90 years is 60 plus half of 60. Fixation with this same number is evident in many other places in the early chapters of Genesis and conspicuously so in the dimensions of Noah's Ark. Its volume is 450,000 cubic units, which can be expressed as 60 times 2 plus 5 multiplied by 60 squared. 
that this focus on the number 60 represents a common ancient Near Eastern convention rather than biological reality becomes clear from a comparison with the Sumerian king list. Okay, so that's the end of the quote. Now, if we're going to use the number 60 as an important part of the core meaning of these texts, with its correlation to universality and kingship and perfection, then we also have to ask why certain other numbers feature prominently in these lists as well, because we have the question of why there are particular multiples of 60, why in the case of Genesis 5, we have numbers that are not round multiples of 60. So what other significant numbers could we be dealing with? You also notice that the number seven turns up numerous times. In the genealogy, we have some ages that end in seven. The seventh name in the list is the only person who doesn't die, but goes to be with God. The total of the reigns of the Sumerian king list, according to manuscripts uh, WB444, uh, is equal to 60 to the power of three plus seven times 60 squared. But some ages in the genealogy don't end in seven, right? Some are five or two or nine. What about those? What's interesting about those is that in the case of nine and the two at the end of some of the ages, by subtracting seven one or two times, you'll end up with a five. So it turns out that the number five is actually a prominent feature as well, and some scholars have noticed that in a period of five years, you get 60 months. As an example, when we look at Enosh, we have 905 years, or 15 times 60 years, which equals 900, plus 60 months, which is five years. So there's your 905. At least in this kind of calculation, we might be talking about months and years, but we're not confusing months with years, unlike that other proposal that suggested the whole thing was a number of months and not years at all. This is giving us a special number of months expressed as years. But after all of these observations, we're still no closer to understanding if there's any kind of system employed by the author of the genealogy or what's going on at all with these numbers. There doesn't seem to be any consistent pattern in the biblical text. Okay, so can you tell us a bit more about the number seven? Yeah, um, okay, so the sevens are significant because seven is a number representative of divinity. Well, to be a little more specific, it's the concept of otherness, which in the Bible is often called holiness. It's that idea of being set apart from something or differentiated from it. We need to be careful with that terminology because we have a tendency to put a moral value on holiness like it's only holiness if there's some kind of moral goodness associated with it. That's actually not the case. We associate goodness and holiness when we're talking about our Heavenly Father because he is uniquely good. And it's the uniqueness that actually ties to the holiness. So don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that God isn't good. I'm saying that it isn't God's holiness that makes him good. Among other things, it is his goodness that makes him holy, that makes him different to us and to the rest of his creation. Of course, there are lots of other attributes that are unique to God that make him holy as distinct from ourselves. But somehow we've zeroed in on moral goodness as the major defining feature of God's holiness to the point where we've conflated those terms. That's an important distinction to make because it means that other divine beings can also be considered as holy without being considered to be morally good. In that situation, holiness reflects the way in which they are distinct and different from us. When we talk about the Elohim as a class of non-embodied beings, we're talking about them in terms of the way that they differ from our own embodied nature, and as such, holy because of the distinction that exists between the two categories. That's not a moral distinction. Incidentally, you see that in other stuff too, like, for example, 
Uh, you might have noticed that the Muslims call their book the Holy Quran, and Christians often object to that and say, "Oh, you can't call it holy. You know, only the only the Bible is holy." No, it's holy because it's set apart as a sacred book devoted to a divine being. That's that's what makes it holy. It's not about a moral quality. Anyway, uh, because the number seven is a prime number that's indivisible and higher than the number six, which has come to represent humanity, it's always been associated with the mysterious nature of the Elohim and by extension with holiness. I should add as well that because of the fact that holiness is not by necessity related to moral goodness, we can also see something of the unpredictable nature of the divine in the number seven, which is reflected in its associations with the concept of chaos. Now, if you've read my book or if you've been of an ancient literature nerd, you might have heard of the Sebetu, the seven spirits of chaos that are described in the Epic of Era. Some of you might have wondered about those references in the book of Revelation about these seven spirits of God. I'm not about to suggest that they are necessarily the same as the Sebetu, by, by the way, that word just means the seven, kind of like in the Lord of the Rings, the nine have left Isengard. But uh, for what it's worth, I think they're definitely not some kind of alleged sevenfold spirit of God based on Isaiah 11, verse 2. You know, there's that bit where it says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That's not seven spirits. It's not. No, that's one spirit, the spirit of the Lord, described with three pairs of attributes. Oh, yeah. But... I digress. So uh, this chaotic element of the number seven is symbolic of the unpredictable nature of the divine and the inherent mystery, at least from our perspective of the divine realm. When we say that God's ways are higher than our ways, we acknowledge the mysterious element of God as the supreme divine being. Our God is a God of order. There can be no doubt about that. But chaos is a matter of perspective. We don't have enough perspective to see the order in everything that God does. Sometimes it appears to us to be the working of chaos and we can get into the whole divine sovereignty aspect of the way that God works and the way that he harnesses chaotic forces in order to bring about order in his world. That's probably a good discussion to have at another time. We're definitely going to hit that when we talk about the flood. That's going to be good. Can't wait. Getting back to our numbers, the fives are important as well. Whether we're dealing with five as an expression of 60 months or five as a number that has a meaning of its own is hard to say. And maybe we don't even have to make that choice. We could go further and look at the symbolic meaning of numbers like 30 and 40 and 10 and 70. Once you start taking these numbers apart, you can contrive any number of multiples of any kind of number you like. As I mentioned last week, the numbers in the Bible are expressed in the form of words because biblical Hebrew doesn't have numerals or signs for number values. So we can't get too carried away with what kind of calculations a person would have to do to arrive at some kind of symbolic meaning. Obviously, this is a text to be heard and meditated on, so there's opportunity to explore these numbers, but we'd be taking it too far to get into complicated mathematics. So I think that's another reason why the whole Babylonian astronomy angle really doesn't work. At any rate, we haven't got the time, at least in this episode, to get into the particular nuances of each number presented in Genesis 5. So what I think we'll do is we'll talk about the different numbers when we hit them as we progress through this season. We're pretty much out of time for this episode to be able to get as far as presenting any real conclusions on the genealogy when it comes to the question of the long ages and we haven't even looked at divergent manuscript traditions yet. I think we'll have to do that one next week. 
So I just want to leave you with a little teaser for that. Did you know that in the Samaritan Pentateuch, the numbers in Genesis 5 get tweaked slightly in order to make certain people die at a certain time? And that isn't the only manuscript tradition to do that. What? Next week on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Yeah. Oh, I knew you were going to do that. Oh, well, it's time for some Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Cassie asked in the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook, I'm sure this has been asked a million times, so I apologise in advance, but I couldn't find it online. My husband has a hard time with this concept. He says the Bible is clear about angels not being able to fornicate. If this is in Scripture, how does this still fit into the narrative? Mm, thanks for the question, Cassie. This is actually one of many questions that I answer in my book, but I'm not going to tell you to just go out and buy it. Who knows, you might want to pick up a copy after hearing this. Incidentally, as I mentioned last week, I have started archiving all the stuff that we tackle on this podcast in a searchable format on the website, giantanswers.com, which means that now that we're having this discussion, you will be able to find it online. So let's start with the sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis 6 and what they are. The sons of God, or in Hebrew, the B'nai Elohim, are a class of divine being. They share similarities with angels, but if we're going to talk about them in terms of rank or something like that, then we're going a bit higher up the ladder. These guys are what we will later come to know as the gods of the nations. They don't just carry messages for God. But the reason they're called sons of God is because they're the same kind of being that God is, but to a significantly lesser extent. So what does that mean? It means that just like God, they have their natural residence independent of physical space. They are, by nature non-embodied. It also means that they're not limited to an intangible existence, but can in fact move in and out of the realm of human experience. As created beings, they are not independent of time, however, and that is an important fact. So as a class of divine beings, these sons of God have certain attributes and abilities that we can learn about from seeing their interactions with others in scripture. In the book of Daniel chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with these sons of God in a dream, and he calls them Watchers. This dream later comes to fruition, and a miraculous thing happens to Nebuchadnezzar as a result. You can read that chapter to find out more about that. The sons of God sometimes appear in entourage with God, as seen in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 5, where God's referred to as plague and pestilence follow him as he leads the Israelites out of Egypt. Again, I think we've talked about that before on this podcast. So what kind of things can these divine beings actually do in a physical sense? Our best indication of that in a single passage that you can just read through and understand quite readily is in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. This is the story of Abraham's encounter with what the Bible initially calls three men. We later find out that these aren't really men. So the first thing we need to get over is that sometimes the term men really means something like persons. And that's going to be important when we come back to Genesis 6 later on. These three men, as it turns out, happened to be God, along with two other divine beings that the scripture later refers to as angels. So what happens when they come to spend some time with Abraham? 
they stop and rest. They talk to Abraham, who's able to hear them and talk back to them. They can hear him and understand what he says. Abraham brings food and they eat the food. They also have a drink. After a conversation with Abraham, they go to Sodom. They meet Abraham's nephew, Lot. He offers to wash their feet. They have feet. Lot also brings them food, which they eat. It appears that they have every intention of sleeping for the night in Lot's house after he persuades them to stay. But then, as we know, the people of Sodom, who were hopelessly evil, came to the house because they wanted to have sex with these men, these angels. They obviously believed that this was a physical possibility or they wouldn't have bothered. And it's very clear from the context that it was definitely a sexual experience that these people were after. But Lot's guests were not powerless against the advances of the men of Sodom. And they miraculously caused them to go blind. And they miraculously caused them to go blind after pulling Lot and his family back inside the house. Like they physically grabbed these guys and pulled them back in the house. So what have we learned from this story about the abilities and attributes of divine beings then? Well, what we see in this text is that divine beings can be manifest in a physical form that's not only visible but tangible and fully functional. The fact that they can eat and drink tells us that they're capable of having normal working bodies just like that of a human. The fact that they had all the tangible attributes of humanity and clearly working internal parts as well. I mean, this wasn't just the appearance of embodiment, it was the real thing. That should tell us that we don't have any kind of logical objection to the idea that they were fully functioning from a sexual viewpoint as well. So from a purely ontological perspective, we don't have a physical reason why divine beings such as the sons of God cannot interact with humanity in every conceivable way, pardon the pun. But what about from the perspective of divine order? What if the problem is not that angels can't do these things, but that they just don't for some reason? And there are plenty of people who assume that angels don't do these things. In fact, it's quite common to hear people quoting Jesus to support their argument that it's not even possible. Uh, for example, in Mark 12, verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So the way that people commonly read this is to see the idea of marriage and everything that comes with marriage as being impossible for angels because it says the resurrected dead will not marry or be given in marriage. Dead people who get resurrected are not going to get married because they are like angels. I'm just hoping that the logic of this will sink in and people will see that this is a non sequitur. In other words, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. If we're going to say that divine beings cannot have sex with human women on the basis that angels do not get married, we haven't really thought it through. It might not have occurred to some people that you can actually have sex without getting married. Not that I'm saying that's okay, but some people seem to be shocked that it happens. Um, yeah, it happens. I was two years old at my parents' wedding, so I'm speaking from experience. But then maybe the argument is that in the afterlife, we're all going to be disembodied. So then we haven't got the equipment for procreation. Now, I realize that the text says that we will be like the angels. But in what sense are we going to be like the angels? Does that need to be a material equivalence? I mean, we could attack that from two different angles. On the one hand, we just looked at angels in the Old Testament, and it's quite obvious that they can possess all the physical attributes that we have, plus more. 
So if we're going to be like that, then again, what prevents divine beings from being able to do what we can do? And if you think we're going to be disembodied in the afterlife, well, I've got news for you. That is completely unscriptural. There is literally no support for that anywhere in the entire Bible. That's Platonism, not Christianity. You didn't get that from Jesus. You got it from Plato. So you can chuck that out right away. The Bible never says that we will be disembodied in the afterlife. And again, the Gospel of Luke tackles this. Luke 20, verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. God's children. Where have we heard terminology like that before? Weren't we just talking about the sons of God? But anyway, there are some really important distinctions to be made when we consider these scriptures and the words of Jesus on this matter. And to quote myself briefly from my book, Answers to Giant Questions. To argue that the angels cannot choose in this world what they do not choose in heaven on the basis that we as believers will be in a similar position to them in the world to come is flawed logic, which the text does not substantiate. So we've got the world in which we live, we've got heaven where the angels are, and we've got the world to come, which is the resurrection. These are three separate realities. Then we have the distinction between what can be done and what is done, what is possible and what is impossible. You can't just blur the whole lot together. You don't get to say that divine beings are not capable of intercourse with human women because people in the resurrection are not going to get married. It just doesn't follow. By the way, are you wondering why angels in heaven don't get married? It's because they don't need to create children. Of course, if they wanted to have kids, they could do that if they were on the earth, not in heaven. Incidentally, that's probably what was behind Jesus' statement when he said that the Sadducees did not know the scriptures. There is a scripture that says the angels have no need of marriage because they have no need of reproduction. You know where it is? It's in the book of Enoch. So it's pretty interesting that Jesus would refer to that when you don't find it anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. So let's recap and spell out what we've learned here. Divine beings are capable of pretty much everything that humans can do. Divine beings can't have children in heaven, but they can on the earth. The fact that the saints and the angels don't do these things in heaven does not mean that they are not possible on the earth. Okay, so hopefully that has given you some conclusive answers on that great question, Cassie. And again, thank you very much for sending it in. Uh, don't forget, if you're listening at home or anywhere, really, you too can send in your giant questions. Jump on our website, giantanswers.com, and use the contact form on the homepage to submit your giant question. And while you're there on the website, you can search through the archive of material that we've already covered in blog posts and episodes of the show. That's all for this week, and we'll be back next time to continue our deep dive into the long ages, Genesis chapter 5. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. 
But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by PJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. G'day folks and well G'day folks. G'day folks. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the Biblical Bilic okay. Biblical brothers. <laughs> we know you got questions about the Biblical brothers. Are they actual brothers? Are they still together? Where are they? What are they doing? Questions without answers. <laughs> Deep in the year to still have access to eggnog, that's fantastic. Life is complete. Yeah, going boys to show America contacted me the other day. Did you really like eggnog? <laughs> That's joking. And I said, yes. <laughs> it's both. <laughs> Chilled, ready-made eggnog from a carton and the, the best thing ever. Must have been the time I went to America and I ordered iced coffee from a restaurant and they gave me coffee with ice cubes in it. Mm-hmm. You don't have iced coffee here? It's it's almost like that when you go to um, McDonald's if you buy a, an iced coffee. They get iced coffee out of the carton like what you would buy it at the supermarket and they put ice in it. Really? Yeah. If you ask for huh. coffee, that's what you get. Huh. So if you yeah. want a properly made one, um, you have to go to like McCafe and ask for a a frappe or something. Yeah, normally I get an iced latte. Some like cafes will give you ice coffee with cream and ice cream, and I'm like, Calamanda. Um, yeah, but well, that's a long way to go to have something stuck up your bum. And Melgan, and men. I knew I knew this was going to happen. Oh uh, yeah, I see you mentioned ChatGPT. We're actually talking about that at work today. We talked about it at church. Yes, there's a there's a pastor that works with us, and yeah, told <laughs> she was like come up with sermons and stuff. She was like shocked. One of the guys at church on Sunday sent us this thing. We create a sermon from Romans nine in the style of Donald Trump, and what it came back is just hilarious. But it's just occurred to me that it won't be long before AI takes over podcasting, and we have to compete with people generating the stuff you. Chat GPT or something like that. Can be sorry. Just call that intrusive thought. Yes, it's certainly uh, been an interesting topic of discussion at my workplace. It's both uh, interesting and uh, terrifying, I must say. Yeah, I've seen all sorts of people having conversations with demons and all sorts of stuff. I'd, I'd be more worried about uh, the computers uh, taking our jobs.
after pulling. So what have we learned from this story about the abilities? Sorry. Sorry, I, I realised that. There was, there was something I hadn't written down and I just went to say it anyway and then I realised that, yeah, you would have been on your queue. Yeah, sorry. Did you want me to say that? Or, no, um, you can say it. Yes, yes, yes. I've just got a I, – I had a little extra bit there. Oh, okay. I'll right. just go back and um, right. go back in there. That should be fresh. Right. So, um, no, I didn't um, – Oh, okay. Anyway. All right. And right, and then so what if we look? Li- <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna mute myself. I'm gonna mute myself. Right. Yeah. I'll. I'll let you know when I'm ready. I just read that out again because my aircon, my freshman just went off. Don't know if you heard that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, answer, Tim. Yeah, and I, I knew I was in trouble when I asked you the question. Okay. I'm always impressed at the amount of research you put in. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it feels like a lot. Well, it is a lot. Uh, I uh, I just don't know how my academics do it for a living just all the time. Well, chat GPT will help them. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be able to uh, play with golf a bit more often, go to the beach, you know. Maybe take up some new hobbies. They just have so much free time in their hands. 